0: Um, today, unfortunately, Horace is out of action. He's uh, stuck in some riots in France uh, on, his, on his way across the European continent. Um, but we have a guest with us who I'm very excited to have on. Uh, we have Regina Cloulou from Populous. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. Um, Well, look, uh, I wanted to let our our listeners know we do have the Micromobility Conference coming up in California on the 31st of January, which, as I understand, you will be at as well. Is that
1: correct? I will. Mm -hmm. That's right.
0: Excellent. Um, So just so everybody knows, that's um, going to be a phenomenal collection. We have um, all of the major scooter companies represented. Um, we're gonna have uh, regulators, investors, hardware manufacturers. I mean, it's gonna be this sort of veritable fest of uh, micromobility, um, which I know I'm incredibly excited to be coming up from New Zealand for, and I know a lot of other people are gonna be, um, be attending. So if you haven't already, um, be sure to go and check out uh, micromobility.io um, and uh, be sure to register. I am very excited to have Regina on. Regina and I have been talking a fair bit um, on, on Twitter and uh, going back and forth and I, and I was incredibly excited to see um, the, the work that uh, you've been putting out through your company Populous. But I thought maybe what you could do is um, just introduce the audience to what Populous does.
1: Sure. Um, So uh, Populous is a mobility data platform that is helping cities manage the future of transportation. Um, We were founded by a team that spent about 30 years combined building software for and with public agencies to plan for the future of travel. Um, And one of the things that we had noticed going back around six years or more um, is that increasingly there was more and more arrival of private mobility services, um, including ride hailing, um, but then bike sharing, and then in 2018, in very large form, scooter sharing. Um, And what cities really need is access to data on how these services are being utilized so that they can prioritize the delivery of safe, efficient, and equitable streets. Um, and so we, as a data platform, bring in data in real time from multiple major mobility operators. Um, and we're now working with cities from coast to coast to help them use that data for more data-driven policy and planning.
0: Excellent. So so at the moment your your customers are obviously cities and they'll, so talk me through what a, what a city would do if they were to sign up, um, you know, what's the value that you guys can bring to the table here?
1: Um, so what we've seen over the last year is, it, particularly in the micro-mobility space, um, dockless bikes and scooters specifically, um, is that cities have passed policies that require um, a number of things, but including most notably the requirement for those operators to share data um, and they're typically requiring that they share some form of data in real time um, and often don't have the technical resources internally to do a lot with that data um, and so we are signing on multiple cities to access our platform, and we basically just ingest the data um, directly from mobility operators. And what we're delivering are aggregate insights to cities to help them make decisions. So one key example is, um, you know, all of a sudden we're seeing the arrival of dockless bikes and scooters, um, and need. Cities need to know where should they prioritize parking for these. So, is there uh, data that they can use to justify taking off some on-street parking and putting in a scooter and bike docking area, or um, using GPS trace data to determine where to place more protected lanes? Um, so, in many ways, it's really a win-win for the companies, micro mobility companies, and cities um, because you know the more information cities have to build better infrastructure for these services to be used more safely then the more you presumably would see those services grow
0: yeah awesome well hey look i'm i I, i've got so many questions okay so i (laughs) really i am really curious from from your perspective i would have thought hey lime or bird they could come in they could probably offer these insights what's the value in you guys um, providing like a third party to be able to do this
1: Um, that's a great question from the operator side clearly they could build out dashboards and deliver them to cities Um, but the problem is cities don't want a monopoly Um, they typically most cities would like to see multiple operators um, and they don't want to have to log into three different dashboards Um, or four or five. Um, They wanted to see all of the information for their entire dockless program for however many operators are out there in one place. Um, Another key complaint that we actually hear directly from cities is that um, they don't think that Certain metrics are being calculated in the same way. Um, So it's really difficult to compare, you know one data point for utilization versus another um, Or one data point for the number of vehicles that are available on a given day versus another when they suspect that they're not being calculated in the same way and the companies generally don't coordinate amongst themselves um, Then requiring the need for a third party Um, and on the city side the real value is that we can more securely um, and cheaply um, deliver those insights to them versus building out, you know, one's own custom solution.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I can I can see that um, and I can also see as well that there's there's value in um, in having Yeah, like a relatively standard platform that um, lots of other cities also use as well. In that sense, so then they can compare notes, et cetera, around um, best practice. I'm really curious around the data standards and what um, different operators or different companies in terms of how they, you know, as you say, utilization calculations um, or, um, uh, you know, how many many vehicles are active at a given time or whatever um, that different companies would calculate in different ways. I'm really curious. What's what's the movement towards, or where do you see this this data standardisation coming through at the moment? So, and and the reason I bring that up is I know that the um, the is it City Analytics Network just put out a, a th- effectively a, um, a, a directive in the last. Uh, week saying, hey, look, if you're going to be, if, for micromobility um, across all the cities in the U.S., we expect these to be the data standards. Um, you know, this is the things that, these are the things that should be shared. Could you talk through how you see this evolving at the moment? Like how, how evolved is it? Are we going to end up with standardized specifications from um, the sector of mobility in the same way that we have it, for example, with transit?
1: Uh, I think we do have pretty good standards for, for transit, right? GTFS, the jet, General Transit Feed Specification um, was sort of a model that was established to help transit agencies deliver their data um, through basically open data, open APIs, that then could be integrated into a multitude of other apps. Um, And then GBFS came along with General Bike Feed Specification. um, And really the origins of GBFS were primarily driven to show consumers. vehicle locations and certain information in a consistent fashion. Um, and it's used by, you know, bike share apps themselves and the operators. Um, but it's also then integrated into data aggregators uh, for consumers like Transit App, City Mapper, and so forth. Um, and what we've seen over the last year, uh, really the latter half of the year, is the introduction of MDS, the Mobility Data Specification by LADOT, um, which is... In many ways, fairly different from GBFS because its intent is to allow for operators to share data with cities, uh, so not with consumers, not necessarily with the public, um, but in a more consistent fashion. Um, And it basically creates now this ecosystem um, and greater efficiencies for the operators to be able to expand their services and know that they can adhere to the data sharing requirements that cities are going to um, put in an operating permit um, in a way that's that's standardized versus um, what was happening before is many cities were cutting and pasting um, other cities permits for dockless mobility um, and then putting in a string of variable names and then maybe modifying it just a little bit um but you know you can imagine that when you modify it just a little bit then um you see that replicate over 100 cities then you soon have a reporting <laughs> nightmare.
0: yeah totally totally yeah <laughs> so so the thing that we see as well and like the 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 sort of the way that horace and i have seen this space um evol- or, or see it evolving is that um the um and we actually brought it up last week around bird platform and the emergence of this idea that actually micromobility serves, it serves itself really well to be a franchised business model that you'll end up with lots and lots and lots of smaller operators who sort of copy and paste the idea, go and get a permit. Um, it's not going to be sort of dominated in the same way that like Uber and Lyft, for example, were able to like, you know, dominate because they kind of ended up they dominated but they only kind of went to the like large cities they don't really work in smaller smaller jurisdictions but you can see that there's going to be um you know you could go and set up a really solid scooter business in a small beach town um and run it for the summer so but you'd want also those to be able to participate and for people to be able to walk along and be able to open a scooter without having to download a separate app so i'm really curious when you say that um the mbs is going to be developed i mean it's as, as you say it's being put out by LA DOT. Um, but it's for the, it's more for the city side for data sharing. I'm really curious, what do you see going forward for operators to be able to operate on like a a generalized feed system that, for example, I walk along, I might have Google maps or I might have, um, you know, any other app, but effectively my app can talk to that scooter. Or do you think we're still, you know, that hasn't really been, that's not really open for discussion at the moment.
1: Yeah, I think that that is still an evolving conversation. Um, I was just doing a a webinar for a consulting firm earlier today, and that question came up. And I think that cities are still trying to figure out Um, how they want to think about and what role they play in defining who gets to access the consumer. So, I mean, the way that I like to think of populace is we're like way on the other end of that technology stack where we're just trying to help ease the pain around the interface between the city and the operator. Um, But what you're talking about is more the interface between multiple operators and the consumer. Um, And I think that, I guess my impression is that most of the large Mobility operators would prefer to own the consumer, um, of but you they would. clearly, you know, have <laughs> the existence of, uh, you know, mobility as a service apps that are basically aggregators of information. I mean, Google Maps being the largest of those types, um, and I think that entire space is evolving and cities will in fact play a role in determining how they'd like um that interface to to look like over the future and there have been cities who have tried to or thought about or continuing to think about developing you know their own publicly procured apps um but but i think it's it's a space that will continue to evolve and we don't know what the right answer is
0: yeah oh very interesting okay this is this is yeah that's excellent insight um and so talk me through for, from your perspective um what does th- there's another part of um the the populace um uh, activity that i've seen that came through which was really exciting to me which is that uh you've made this announcement with line bike uh to do the parking or effectively to have uh where they're doing the dockless what they call it line pods which are at 500s and uh, the streets of Seattle, um, that you are working with them to be able to do uh, um, parking, cost provision, etc. Could you talk through that um, and how that works?
1: Yeah, so this, um, I think the evolution of MDS and mobility data sharing um, is what I think a lot of cities are thinking about as just the beginning. Um, but of their ability to be able to more actively manage their streets, um, and clearly we have a lot of other vehicles that use our streets, <laughs> including cars, um, and we're seeing growth in you know shared vehicle fleets through obviously services like uber and lyft um, but also even in free floating car sharing so um, lime pod um, was introduced um, just very recently um, and we work with lime now to bring in real-time data from their cars in order to validate how much on-street parking they're using um, and what's exciting about that is that a lot of cities would like to develop strategies for better utilization of public space Um, now whether that includes curbside parking uh, so you can imagine pickup and drop-off zones that can be carved off for fleet vehicles um, as well as sidewalk space for more bikes and scooters to be parked um, in a more orderly fashion. Um, And how do cities think about, you know, how are those vehicles utilizing that space? And then how can they develop pricing, both in the form of say fees, but also maybe incentives, if they wanna incentivize the placement of vehicles in certain areas um, and, and thinking about their role in more actively managing that physical space, which basically they get to call the shots on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so with the with the Lime in, in Seattle, effectively, as the Lime cars move around the city and they're, they're like a car to go, is that, is, would that be an accurate description in terms of how that system works?
1: Yeah, it's free-floating car sharing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So as people kind of go around, they park up, the they park into a into a location, um, and then it's just like, okay, this car's parked, you guys get that information, and then you'll just aggregate the amount of parking at the end of the month, and is that used as like an auditing, or is it you guys facilitate the billing, or how does that work from from your your side, or is that all stuff you can't talk about?
1: Um, so we can talk about it at a high level, but basically there are curb policies um, in a city, any city, that define how much people need to pay if they need to pay and what hours of day um, that, that curb space. Um, and so that's, those are the analytics that we're performing um, using the real-time vehicle location. So when they are parked, um, we then determine, are they in a space that requires them to pay the city? Um, and then we do that, basically parking validation and reporting.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So in some ways you're yep. like the, yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense because in some ways that technology I could see, I mean, we actually, I was having this conversation on this morning on Twitter, but uh, that, that's the sort of technology that I can see, um, scooters eventually being, you know, at the end of the day, at the moment you have like a tragedy of the commons, um, sort of situation, um, you know, and there's also kind of, a, I think, a general question there around what rights exist for private companies to be able to effectively utilize public space for parking, um, but for a commercial outcome. And so there is obviously, com- there's there's political pressure on a lot of councils and um, local bodies around um, around how they legislate and regulate for this, where they'd say, if you're going to be operating in these public spaces, we want to have you operate in, in a way that's um, more efficiently allocated so i can see that this technology as you as you guys are talking about it um being applied to scooters and that you have you know, a scooter parking, and there are places that you can go and park scooters, and um, and when it gets parked there, uh, that that will be charged by the by the jurisdiction in which these scooters or these bikes, etc., operate. Um, and then as well, you'd have this interesting thing happening of like, well, could we actually start doing something interesting that with that in terms of being able to do load balancing via um, you know charging more if you're in a trying to park in a place that's really exciting. I mean, in the same that we have, you know general like, different prices for parking in a city for cars
1: you know i think that one of the challenges that cities have now is and you know this is partly a u.s issue but it, i think that it exists in other other places where cars have um really dominated our city planning um but we also have these really big vehicles that sit there all the time um where the space is maybe under utilized or not efficiently utilized. Um, and then with access to better data, like how many trips are actually being made on that micro-mobility device, whether it's a scooter or a bike or a lime pod, um, cities can start to basically carve back some of the space that has been allocated, allocated to, in many cases, just free parking, um, to identify areas where shared vehicles that are probably being utilized more than the other vehicles that have traditionally used that space. Um, yeah. To use oh, it I mean, that's way. a
0: that's a very slippery slope there because it? <laughs> it's, it's sort of, you know, I mean, I, I know, especially having lived in the US, it's like, don't you dare take my free parking. It's like, yeah, but it's totally inefficient use of public space, you know, um, and, and it's, it's like a horrible subsidy that actually ends up wrecking cities. um And yeah, well, hospital. I
1: think it's going to happen yeah. the, now that we have these services and now that cities have access to better data to calculate. The utilization rates of those vehicles and the use their use of physical space you can better optimize that space and it will i think result in the end you know increasingly um reductions of the amount of free parking that we allow to exist
0: yeah absolutely
1: excellent well look i'm just going to take a small break here
0: to talk about our sponsor joyride um we've mentioned them in the past and we uh horace and i both think they're excellent so you know it's there are obviously many, countless ways of, uh, or, or um, current and aspiring micro mobility fleet operators out there. If you're one of these, then you probably know that what you've uh, that you've got what it takes to run a fleet efficiently and profitably. You're doing your research, you're checking out the blogs, articles, downloading reports, and listening to this podcast. Uh, if we if you're lucky enough, um, and but the metrics from those venture funded companies are mind blowing, and you and you wonder how things would look if you focused on your local market. Well, Joyride is a solution that provides a custom white-labeled mobile app and scalable backend that allows everybody from the small local operator to transit agencies to launch their own micromobility fleets within weeks. Plus, they have partnerships with all the major manufacturers, so you're guaranteed to have the highest quality hardware when you launch your own bikes or scooters. Here is an example of what one Joyride scooter has accomplished. The operator launched a fleet of 200 electric scooters in their hometown within two months Oh, and within two months, they were making six figures from rides. All while operating in a city that already had some of the largest scooter share companies operating. This doesn't even include the additional revenue they're generating through the Joyride advertising platform that allows you to connect your your customers with retail partners around the city. Maybe you didn't think you could compete in the micromobility space before. Maybe you thought the market was already controlled by a few giants. Well, Joyride levels the playing field for these operators allowing anybody to succeed with their fleet. Whether you're an independent operator with a desire to launch locally or a transit agent looking to solve the first and last mile for your customers, Joyride helps you find the micromobility solution that works for you. Start your own scooter or bike share system today. See more at joyride.city. That's joyride.city. It's time to join the global micromobility movement. Mention the Micromobility podcast and receive your first month for free. Thank you, Joyride, for supporting Five by Five and the Micromobility Podcast. Excellent. Well, I, I every time I read these ads from Joyride, I get like more pumped about what they're doing generally, <laughs> but generally with the opening of this business model. You've got, you know, the creation of this potential for business um, to exist in all of these places that traditionally never would have existed. It's all additive business. Um and, and I oh, yeah, anyway I, I get very excited whenever I read the Joyride thing, so I, I will put that aside. Um, I'm really curious, um, as someone who sort of obviously you're looking at the data for cities, what, what are the things that you can see that get enabled when, when you have you know, companies like yourselves coming along and saying, we're gonna liberate this data that at the moment um, has been coming in from a lot of different places, um, but hasn't been effectively utilized. Like what, what are you seeing cities being able to do with this?
1: Well, one example is I think in Washington, D.C., they previously had a smaller cap on the number of vehicles that were allowed by each operator. Um, And they were seeing, uh, you know, they were monitoring the utilization rates. They were also monitoring the utilization rates of the capital bike share, the existing docked bike share system. Um, And it didn't appear that they, you know, that this new service that was being introduced um, was cannibalizing their existing system. Um, So it was complementary. And in addition, you know, obviously many cities are interested in and concerned about equity. Um, so we did a report on how these services were expanding access in areas that previously are, were underserved or continue to be underserved, but, but the dockless services are actually um, you know, easier to access in those communities. And so cities now have more data and information to be able to say, okay, well, these services are, are providing more access. They're not cannibalizing our existing investments. We can you know, let them increase the, the number of vehicles they have and continue to operate. Yeah, and I think also- before cities were basically in the dark, you know, they didn't have any information.
0: That's, that's Obviously. really fascinating. Can you talk me through? cause I, I read that report from DC, but can you just sort of summarize where, where you got, like, what, what were the outcomes of that? When, what were you comparing it to and what, what were the findings of that?
1: Um, so we used a couple of different data points. Um, I mean, the most simple way to look at the data is to organize, um, a city like D.C. or really any other city into particular geographic zones. Uh, And if you know that there's a certain zone that's um, underserved, you can look at the percentage of vehicles that are placed in that zone. That's really kind of the most simplistic way to look at it. Um, But what we did was a little bit more complex. Um, We calculated the average distance to a vehicle. Um, from every street intersection. Um, and this was based on um, you know, vehicle locations, so stationary vehicles and where they were available um, for all the operators. So we just lumped all the dockless services together, scooters, bikes, e-bikes, uh, and then Capital Bike Share. Um, and what we found is that when you look in Ward 8, which is traditionally underserved, um, you can actually get to a dockless vehicle much faster um, than you can get to the docked system. Um, And additionally, we used our own data, which is our own proprietary data on the adoption and use of mobility services to assess the adoption rates um, across different um, income and um, uh, racial groups and found that low income and uh, minority populations are actually using the dockless service at a much higher rate um, than the existing dock system. and even more so than, you know, their higher income and non-minority counterparts.
0: Yeah, look, this is, the, I, I think this is really profound. The 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 one thing that um, I'm really curious about is, so we, I'll contextualize it. We did a, an interview with uh, a, a professor, Professor Winston Kwan from the University of Edinburgh Business School, who's been talking about the ability of micromobility to... Uh, re- well, to impact on mobility poverty and mobility poverty is defined as you know um, access to mobility the ability to get actually from one place to another as intended in a time frame that's reasonable for the person um, and actually a lot of lower income communities especially you know especially in the U.S. Um, though in a lot of you know generally speaking developed countries where you've got a relatively sparse um, not dense uh, urban urban fabric. Um, oftentimes you need a car to be able to get around and that and that really, le- or you're kind of reliant upon public transit that may not be particularly um, reliable or well connected. And so micromobility has the opportunity in theory to be able to do this. And this is the first time that I've seen data that comes together and actually says like, yep, this is actually, you know, imp- this is this is adding new mobility capability at a low cost um, to, to these communities. And I'm really curious, you know, did that, did that trend, did that look at, um, access to transit or how that interfaced with the transit system in DC as well? Or was that simply just looking at bike shares?
1: Um, we've done access to transit studies as a team before, but this was really just specifically focused on micromobility. So if you want to do an apples to apples comparison of, um, you know, your existing docked system, um, against new dockless services that are being delivered to a city in a different fashion, you know, that haven't been um, available before, um, you can do that easily and, and make a call on, okay, maybe we should increase the number of vehicles that are available because we're seeing some positive benefits here. Or, you know, are there certain areas that are underserved and maybe we need to develop a subsidy program
0: yeah totally well talk me through because this is one thing as well that you know we see i I, to be honest i had never come across subsidy programs um in new zealand we don't have subsidy programs for our public transit or any you know any sort of um, mobility thing except if you're over 65 you get a sort of special retirement card um so from for for a a city um in the u.s as they're looking to develop it um, the, the ability to provide low cost transit, how does that actually work? Because I'm, I'm quite not familiar with it. Um, so is it, do, do you, how do they do the income screening, et cetera? Um, and is that only applicable to transit or does it work on Uber, Lyft, taxis, et cetera? Or you know, what, what, how do those typically work?
1: So, typically, the way they work is that they're available on publicly run systems. So, you know, public transit agencies typically have programs that are focused on providing a subsidy um, for low income, um, and then also certain ages as well. A student, They're usually student discounts and senior discounts and then low income discounts. Um, but the challenge is because um, private mobility services have largely been unregulated and don't really fall under the jurisdiction of those agencies, um, there haven't really been um, any formal large scale subsidy programs. Um, but what we are seeing is with micro mobility services and pretty, you know, significant regulation um, around those services, a lot of cities are looking at how can they introduce either a subsidy or other programs that ensure that these services are serving um, a broad segment of our populations.
0: Interesting. Yep, I can see that. I, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a general question the industry is going to have to answer. It's funny because I look at this, and you know, one of the points that um, Winston was making is like, look, these services oftentimes the point from the point point to point trip is actually cheaper than any other option already um, for, for, for people. So going ahead and subsidizing it or, or in, um, saying, you know, you need to have a low income option or something like this strikes me as one of these things. That's just sort of like the traditional transit, um, transit framing, um, being applied to, to sort of the new one, rather than looking at like the overall, you know, well, what are the options that are on the table for someone? Actually, this is the cheapest option. Therefore, do we need to go and um, impose those, those, um, kind of, uh, constraints upon operators. But I think that that's a, That'll be an interesting uh, evolution and discussion as as things go on. Um, I think there's also- Yeah, like... I think
1: that's a good- that Sorry. I was going to say that's a good point. There are- um, I also commented on this a bit in our report um, on equity. Um, we have heard stories um, in cities, not around dockless bike share and scooter share, but more around free-floating car sharing, um, that there were instances where basically- they were overregulated um, to the point where the operators couldn't justify continuing operations. Um, so there's a delicate balance, right, of being able to identify policies that can encourage, um, you know, more distribution of vehicles or affordable options in communities that are underserved, versus driving them out completely when they might, in fact, be making a difference. Um, so I think finding the right balance is really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what, for you, I mean, what is the, um, you're obviously seeing sort of like the, the insights from, from micromobility, um, you, you know, that's a year, we're a year in-ish, more or less, since it really kind of took off. And I'm kind of curious for you guys, I mean, I assume like everybody else, you kind of got a bit taken by surprise by how popular these turned out to be. And I'm talking specifically like Bird and Lime. Um, Where do you, you know, can you talk me through um, how cities and those conversations that you've been having with them, I mean, are they, I get the sense they're obviously being a lot more proactive than they were around when uh, Uber and Lyft, for example, came in in the past. Um, but ha- how, have, how, have, how are cities thinking through this and the, the, the very rapid growth um, of this?
1: Yeah, I think that, so we had been following what was happening in shared mobility for the last six years. And with dockless micromobility, um, I believe that many cities were preparing um, for dockless. But what they thought would come were dockless bikes from China because they saw that that had happened you know before they started arriving in the u s They first um, launched in in China and so Seattle for is was the first city that developed permit around a dockless um, micro mobility uh program but specifically bikes uh and then when dockless scooters arrived all these other cities just kind of copied that permit (laughs) uh and and had a framework in place so i think that there were two things that happened one cities were already kind of preparing for dockless um and two there was the example that they could use of seattle um and, and then, as you mentioned, you know, they had seen what had happened with Uber and Lyft and this time wanted to be able to say, these are our streets. Um, these are systems that we need to have information about so that we can plan infrastructure that is safe and reliable for our citizens.
0: Yeah, completely. Um, And in terms of like, where do you, I mean... I'm not going to, I'm not going to, to, to frame it up. Obviously I have a micromobility bent, but I'm really curious, where do you see the market going at the moment, um, with, you know, in terms of what you're seeing and what cities are asking of you guys?
1: Well, what we're seeing is that, you know, many cities are cautiously developing preliminary programs for micromobility services. They want to evaluate, um, how effective these services are being utilized in their cities. Uh, We have the issue of winter, (laughs) which has arrived in the U.S. Um, And so I think a lot of cities are kind of on pause because of that for a few months. Um, uh, Although, you know, Southern California is fine and a number of other cities in the southern region of the U.S. are going to continue onward. Um, And so I think that in the spring... And next year, and obviously there's a lot of, it. there are a lot of industry happenings in the micro-mobility space, uh, including you know, the acquisitions of two major bike share companies, uh, Jump and Motivate, and then a lot of conversations around what will happen with Lyman Bird. Um, so I think we'll see what happens in 2019 in terms of how many companies are in existence um, versus if there's a little bit more consolidation. Um, and on the city side, I believe that we will continue to see growth in micromobility services. Um, I think that there are clearly hardware issues and form factors that are going to change um, regarding, you know, how are these uh, devices secured? Um, are there other more weather-resistant options, which is why I think Lime launched the LimePod. Um and, uh, yeah, it's an interesting time. But I think that there are so many trips that are being made by personal vehicles that are under three miles um, that we have to figure out other solutions.
0: Yeah. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to our last podcast, but uh, Horace put forward um, that he, he believed, and I termed it the dead use law, uh, that we are going to see a 10xing of, uh, of, of micromobility trips per year um for for at least the next three or four years and and we're and 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 he he uses that by saying look even though they've done what 20 million trips in aggregate I think the lines have done 20 million trips in aggregate we're sort of looking at maybe 30 or 40 million trips um in the year and then he's like yeah look it's entirely reasonable that we'll be seeing several hundred million next year etc what are the constraints i I'm I, I mean I know why he's bullish I'm slightly more cautious because I'm having a lot of conversations with friends who are in this space who are in operators etc um how do you I mean what do you think are the constraining factors here obviously there's like a huge amount of groundswell of um you know look these are low cost they make a lot of sense etc um but um yeah how do you see cities kind of reacting to this obviously there's a huge amount of demand there as you say most trips are under three miles so there's There's a lot of, there's a huge amount of market to actually potentially be addressed by it. Um, How do you you think it'll end up evolving?
1: Um, Well, I think there are a number of the key limits to growth. The first one that we were talking about internally at Populous is, there may be a certain limit on the ages of users, right? Um, Like you need to be able-bodied to use a scooter and a bike. And so that limits, you know, the population that are likely to use the services. Uh, So that's one limitation I think that with form factor and hardware upgrades, those can evolve and capture a broader segment of the population. Um, there's clearly the issue of wear and tear in a shared model and how are, is the hardware going to evolve to ensure that they are able to last longer. Um, and I think the biggest one, though, is how can cities that aren't really designed to allow people to move around very safely on bikes Um, evolve their infrastructure um, so that people do feel safe and are safe um, riding on on streets. Um, And I think that's where, you know, data has a really big role to play um, and the coordination between cities and operators has a really big role to play. Uh, There was a really interesting uh, study that was released in China just today or yesterday um, that said that um, they're seeing... The bike share programs in China reducing inner city car trips by 7.4% in some areas in in China.
0: Have you been to see the Chinese, uh, like, have you been to China since the bike shares, uh, but the bike share systems launched?
1: Um, I haven't. I actually spent a summer as a researcher in China, but this was long before um, Bike Share launched, and I haven't seen it physically in person. I do know that a lot of the folks at Motivate, now a part of Lyft and Jump, had spent a lot of time in China, and that I think partly drove some of their hardware decisions um, because they saw how chaotic it was. Um, yeah <laughs> but it's really interesting to see some of the new news that's coming out about um, some of the successes of the programs
0: uh, I was in China in June and um, and had an absolute blast riding around Shanghai and Beijing and some of the other cities um, and it's such a, I mean obviously, s- China has the sort of, you know, it's had that long history of cycling. So a lot of its infrastructure was still relatively intact. And they did have bike lanes that were still there and they do have a well functioning, you know, just by virtue of having so so many citizens, they have a really well functioning public transit system. So you're able to rely on bike share and public transit and be able to get around quite efficiently around a city. Um, and it's just one of these things around built design i think your your point around infrastructure is entirely correct i think about it from a perspective of how quickly can, um, can there be even with really strong political pressure um, from and and you know there's going to be incentives that are put in place i see a lot of micromobility operators coming along and saying hey we'll pay you know whatever portland put in a 25 cent a ride um, fee and that you know probably works for the unit economics of um, of these scooter companies to be able to justify that for them to say, you know, we're going to go and build a uh, an infrastructure that works for micromobility, how quickly can that happen? I think that's a really open question um, in terms of retrofitting cities. Yeah, so, yeah. I like
1: to say, um, you know, the greatest thing that's happened with electric scooters and um, bikes is that all of a sudden in the U.S. you have all these people um, calling for the fact that we don't have more safe bike infrastructure, which a lot of folks who i know (laughs) who have been in active transportation planning for you know decades are like we've been saying this for years (laughs) but now all of a sudden there are you know tons more people who are asking for it um which is a great thing so it's one of the best things that these services have have produced is this new coalition of people who who care about um, active transportation and being able to to use streets in ways that don't involve driving your own car
0: <laughs> i i 100 agree well look hey is there anything else that you wanted to uh to to discuss or to or to, to do a shout out to the audience with we do have people in here who i'm sure are uh potential customers of populace um is there anything that you'd like to say in terms of how they can get in touch with you
1: um, yeah, sure. So we host regular webinars um, on data sharing for cities and then also some of the information and use cases for harnessing that data to make planning decisions. So I encourage folks to visit our website at populace.ai. Um And then all of the reports that we've ever produced, um, the micromobility revolution, uh, and then our most recent one on measuring equity and access are all publicly available for download. So I um, encourage folks to check those out. Excellent.
0: And they can follow you on Twitter at
1: uh, Regina Clulo. Perfect. And we're also populous underscore AI.
0: Excellent. Cool. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Regina. I really appreciate um, your insights here. I mean, I think from our side, as we're, as we're evolving our thesis around how this is going to work, it's great to be able to talk to people like you who have this perspective of having it you know, I think we've talked a lot with operators or people who are sort of tangentially involved, but you're really talking to those cities and how, and how they're thinking about it. And I think that's a really valuable perspective. Um, so thank you so much for your, uh, your time and looking forward to seeing you at the micromobility Conference
1: looking forward to it thanks so much for having me
0: no worries cheers